So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 21, uh, verse number 12. Uh, this is after Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem uh, on a colt, um, and now in verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the, the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Flip over to Mark uh, chapter 11. Basically the same story, uh, but he adds another phrase in there that I think is interesting. Mark chapter 11 uh, and verse number 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the, table of the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you, had made it, you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, Luke 19, again, same story, but he uses a different phrase. He says, for all the people were hanging on his words, what Jesus was, was teaching. Before we get into this a little bit and just talk about it, point out a few things that are cool and then some things that should change the way we view uh, our life and make even more meaningful the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, let's go to our Father in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this morning, for an opportunity to worship you through, through giving. And God, we pray that those funds will be used to further the vision uh, of this church and the mission that you have placed on all churches. God, I pray that you would um, uh, be with us now as we open your scripture, uh, that you would allow us to be able to hear with our ears and understand with our heart. God, may what Matthew and Mark and Luke record for us embolden our faith. May it make us even more amazed at what you accomplished on Calvary's cross. God, may it affect us in a way uh, that, that just emboldens our faith that gives us a greater uh, courage uh, in what you have called us to do as your sons and as your daughters. For the next few minutes, God, just, uh, we ask your spirit would just help us to understand, help us to realize and to even a greater degree what your life, your death, and your resurrection means for us today. And God, we love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, looking at these, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, um, uh, Matthew and Mark mention that Jesus entered the temple. 
And depending on the version or the translation of Scripture that you use, there's a little bit more information added in there. For example, the New American Standard Bible says that they entered the temple area. The NIV says that they entered the temple court. And that just little bit bigger understanding is important for us to understand what happened and what transpired when Jesus went into the temple court. It's significant because when you step into, when you step into the temple court, court, when you walk through those front doors, you are now in the court of the Gentiles or the ethne, the court of the nations. It is the only place where non-Jews were allowed to go in the temple. It was open to anybody and everybody. It's the biggest section of the temple. And if, if you have a study Bible, it might be right there on your page. Or if you have a map section, there might be a picture back there. But it's the biggest section. And you had to go through the court of the Gentiles to get to any other part in the temple. And on this occasion, all the business operations of the temple were happening in this area. And it had to have been quite a scene. As Jesus walked in, he would immediately have seen all these throngs of people. Remember, this is Passover time. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have converged on Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So this place is packed. And he would have seen money changing tables where, where they were uh, exchanging foreign currency for the local currency so that they go to the next booth and buy the sacrifice that they needed to celebrate the Passover. Uh, last week we mentioned, uh, and I found it, it was 255,000 is what the first century uh, historian Josephus said, uh, one, one Passover, 255,000, that's a quarter of a million lambs were sold and slaughtered at one Passover. Now, if you had a kid, you've been in this situation, I've been in it, uh, where, where you think that your kid is talking a little bit or crying and causing a distraction, imagine worshiping with thousands upon thousands of bleeding animals being sold for the Passover. Think about how tumultuous this would be. Right, so I've never been to like the, the New York Stock Exchange on the trading floor, but I've seen movies, so that makes me an expert on it. But think about that scene, all the trading, the selling, the buying, and then throw in all the livestock, and that's what Jesus walked into when he walked into the court of the Gentiles. And this was a place, church, that was open for the Gentiles to come into contact with God, to come and to worship him in reflection, in, in, in prayer, in giving, in teaching. It was to be a place of prayer. Now, this word prayer all right, means a little bit more than just prayer. Right? It's, it's called a, a synecdoche, right? a big word, a figure of speech that, that, that means where that some, a part is made to represent the whole. Right? As an example, in 1990, Cincinnati won the World Series. Right. Did all of Cincinnati win the World Series? No. The Cincinnati Reds won the World Series. But that small part then represented the whole. And that's what prayer does right here. Prayer uh, in, in this setting, in this, in this context, is meaning their corporate worship. It's like when we come into this room. We don't just pray. We give. We learn. We sing. Right? We do all those things. So, so prayer here is 
reading and praying and teaching and songs and offerings. And Jesus' reaction to coming in and seeing this place of worship turned into a marketplace is to start flipping furniture over and driving people out. Imagine the leaders running over to him, the temple leaders running over to him in a panic. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And Jesus quoted from Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is for the Gentiles. They were amazed when he said this to them. Why? Because it was common belief, even to those religious leaders who were in charge of overseeing the temple and its operation and the worship that happened there. It was common belief that when the Messiah showed up, he was going to purge the temple of non-Israelites, of any foreigner, of anybody who was not of that nationality, he was going to, to kick them out. So we know that that's a gross misrepresentation and misunderstanding of all Scripture because from, the, from all through the Old Testament, we see that God is coming for all people, not just Israel, not just the Jews. And here we see those who were charged with ordering the house of God with robbing They're guilty of robbing the Gentiles of being able to worship God. By excluding the Gentiles, they were showing that for them, the temple had become a symbol of Israel rather than a house of worship to Almighty God. Jeremiah 7, uh, 9 through 11, and the paraphrase here, the, the, the prophet writes, will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery and go after other gods? Then come and stand in the house of God and say that we are delivered, only to go back out and to keep on doing those abominations? Has this house become a den of robbers, robbers in your eyes? And Jesus is, is calling them out, but people are no different now than they were then. You see, the people at this time had, had a, a statement to the, to the temple of the Lord. They would do whatever sin they would commit, whatever sin they were guilty of committing, and then they would just throw this phrase on it, to the temple of the Lord, right? It's really akin to what we do where we may just badmouth somebody, right? We may, may gossip about somebody and just rake them over the coals and then follow it up with, oh, bless their heart. Or or talk about somebody and say, oh, um, he's got such a servant's heart. We we try to cover over all that gossip and all that slander and all that nasty, evil talk by this little phrase. And that's what the people in Jesus' time would do. They would do whatever sin, whether it was an act of uh, a sin of commission or uh, a sin of gossip or whatever it was, and then just say, well, to the temple uh, of the Lord. And, And... They treated it as this magic incantation that they could say or do whatever they want to as long as they followed up with, oh, bless his heart. Uh, Much bigger scale, it's like we say with our mouth that we believe that Jesus is Lord, that he's our Christ, and then we live as if Jesus doesn't even exist because he gave us a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jeremiah and Jesus compare these Israelites. uh, I I love the word brigands. Right? Gang members who ambush people uh, as they go and, and they, they ambush, they kill, they rob, they destroy, and then they just flee to the temple and say, ah, oh, 
We're in the house of the Lord. Everything's okay. We're safe here. They were, re they were retreating after they were sinning to this safe cave or this stronghold, completely nullifying, completely reversing what the temple was there for. And just a little bit more, this word robbers, all right, it's not just a, a pickpocket, a petty thief. It's the word insurrectionist. We heard that last week during Holy Week when we were talking about Barabbas. He was a rebel. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. So we have made this temple a nationalistic stronghold that we can just flee to. They were more concerned about the politics of their nation than they were about the worship of their God. Again, it was commonly believed that when the Messiah showed up, that he was going to purge the temple of foreigners. Instead, here we see Jesus clearing the temple so there's room for the Gentiles. He was an advocate for them. Now, we like that in our multicultural society. It's, more, it's easier for us to see that, and understand, but not so in Jesus' times. They did not like this. Notice, uh, that, uh, notice that also that Jesus isn't just chasing out those who are selling because they're jacking the price up on a lamb or on a pigeon. He's also throwing out the buyers. So it wasn't just overcharging. It was, it was this act idea of commerce taking place in a place where worship was supposed to be occurring. The noise of the commerce, the, the bleeding of the animals prevents the environment, silence, solitude, reverence, worship that is necessary for the Gentiles and anybody else to worship God. Now the rabbis kept pretty good records and if they are to be trusted, then we know that not too long before this encounter that Caiaphas, right, we meet him in a few chapters if we're reading through. We meet him over in Matthew chapter 7. We don't like the guy, right? He's one of the guys who was a part of the trial of Jesus and condemned Jesus. He was a high priest. But not too long before this, maybe a matter of years, he moved things. He changed things. Instead of having the selling and the buying of animals on the outskirts of Jerusalem in the valley, right, he moved all that into the court of the Gentiles. Now, you may think that the buying and selling of, uh, of sacrificial animals is weird, but think about this. Right? Some of, some of our, the families were traveling long distances to come to Jerusalem to sacrifice. Not everybody was shepherds in this time. Some people were carpenters. Some people were fishermen. So not everybody had sheep available. So there had to be a place to buy pigeons, to buy, to buy sheep as you were coming to celebrate the Passover. But it was supposed to be on the outskirts of town, not in the worship center. And that's what Caiaphas had done. Uh, that's probably why Mark's gospel in verse 17 adds on uh, that you've made this, that this is to be a, a house of prayer for all nations because all the people were coming in and it was to be a house of prayer for all nations, not the Walmart super center for all nations. In this moment, in this event, Jesus is challenging the sacrificial system altogether by saying that the Gentiles, these pagan, unwashed, unwanted Gentiles could go directly to God in prayer. That should be reassuring for us, church, 
Because out of the, 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 the people in this room, the vast majority of us are Gentile, not Jewish. And here we, and Jesus, and Jesus here is saying, come in and worship. History and context is important anytime you open up scripture. It's paramount here. What Jesus does is he projects forward to his death and his resurrection, but he also projects way, way, way back to the beginning of time. Because the story of the temple actually starts way back in Eden. So if we go clear back to the beginning of human time, we see that God created Eden, this sanctuary, perfect sanctuary. And, we, and because it was perfect, Adam and Eve got to walk with God in the cool of the day and ask him questions. I don't know about you, but I have this growing list of questions that I want to ask when I get to heaven. Some of them are serious, most of them are not. But Adam and Eve didn't have to wait. They could just ask God in the Garden of Eden. There was perfection. There, there was no disease. There was no sin. There was, there was nothing hindering a relationship with Jesus Christ. It was a sanctuary. It was a temple where God was present with humans. But when the first humans decided to build their lives on something other than God, when they decided to trust Satan over God, that paradise, that sanctuary was lost. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. All right, if you read in Genesis chapter 3, there's this, in verse 24, there's this interesting verse that, that he drove out the man. This is God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden of Eden. Uh, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I am 50 years old, and I have read that verse countless times. And you, uh, you know what always popped into my head? Right? The flaming sword going in every way? Yoda. Star Wars. You know, if you're not a Star Wars fan, he's about this tall. He's green. Ears that stick out got killer lightsaber skills, right? There's some scenes where he's like flipping all over the place and that, that lightsaber is going all over the place. And every time I would read that, I would chuckle because that's a vision that I have. But church, we have to be careful that we're not laughing when we should be crying because the fact that God placed this cherubim at the garden with this flaming sword that blocked the way back to God is significant in our history, in our lives. No one can ever get past the flaming sword that barred the way back into the presence of God. End of story. Because perfection had been destroyed. Sanctuary had been destroyed. Turning from God always has dreadful consequences. We, we build our lives on other things, power, status, acclaim, family, race, nationality. Anytime we do that, it causes war, conflicts, disease, poverty, death. We've trampled on one another. We've trampled on the earth. And all we want to do is say, man, I'm sorry. Will you let us back in? And God says no. Because perfection has been destroyed. Now, if you have ever been sinned against, if anybody has ever committed a heinous sin against you, you know, you understand that it's not just enough to say, I'm sorry, and for everything to be okay. No. 
for that relationship to be restored, something big has to happen. Something monumental has to happen. I think our parents have, have, uh, have sort of done a disservice to us. And if you are a parent, right, you have been a part of this disservice. But have, if you have more than one kid, you have had this position at times, right? You have kid A, kid B, who are, at a, who are, who are fighting, who are arguing, and you're keeping them apart. And then slowly you bring them together. And what are the words that you say? Tell your brother you're sorry. Right? They're still red in the face. They're still swinging at each other. Say you're sorry. Right? And we demand an apology when there's, no, when there's no there's no regret. There's no remorse. There's no I want to heal. It's just say you're sorry. Right? I had friends growing up whose mom and dad would make them sit on the couch and hold hands until they felt calmed down enough uh, to say I'm sorry to their sibling. Right? I had another um, this was my favorite one. I had another family, uh, family friends who the, the parents bought this supersized T-shirt, like a 6X, uh, and they would put the kids in the same T-shirt, head, both heads sticking up through the same uh, hole, right? and they would have to sit there in the same T-shirt until they loved each other enough to, to, to mumble the words, I'm sorry. But if somebody wrongs us, especially in a big way, for them just to say, I'm sorry, let's go back to the way it was, that doesn't work. There's a price that has to be paid by someone. And it's not because you don't want to forgive out of vengeance or spite or because you're mean or because you instantly hate that person. It's because when there is a sin committed, a price has to be paid. Something is required. Some kind of costly payment must be paid to put things right. Justice must prevail. That flaming sword spinning in every direction is the sword of eternal justice, and it will not fail to exact payment. I want you to hold on to something as we, as we wrap up our time together, that nobody can get back into the presence of God unless they undergo the sword, unless they pay for the wrong that has been done. That's why we shouldn't find ourselves laughing at sin, laughing when we step outside of God's word and and joking about it when our only legitimate response should be brokenness and weeping. Nobody can get back into the presence of God unless they undergo the sword. But who can survive the sword? The answer is no one. And if no one, excuse me, if no one can survive the sword, then how will we ever get back into the presence of God? Well, these questions have remained for eons. And God established this provisional solution for his chosen people for Israel. Uh, by, by first through the tabernacle and then through the temple that we read about in Matthew and Mark and Luke. You see, in the middle of the temple was the holy of holies. This perfect cube. And this holy of holies had some special stuff in it. It had the, the Ark of the Covenant in it. It had special uh, vases and, and, and urns uh, for, for the sacrificing. And it was separated from the rest of the world by this thick veil, this heavy, heavy curtain, because the holiness of God, or we need to be protected from the holiness of God. Right? If you remember your Old Testament just a little bit, right? to see God's holiness directly led to you dying. So there was thick veil put around to protect us. And just once a year, 
on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest and only the high priest could go into the Holy of the Holies, but only if he carried a blood sacrifice. Only if there was a sacrifice shed, killed for the sins of the people. That perfect animal had to undergo the sword. Why? Because there's no way back into the presence of God without going under the sword. But, but even that blood sacrifice was an inadequate symbol uh, of what atonement had to happen. What's more, it didn't affect all of us. It was just for God's people, the Israelites at the time. The taber, the temple, the, the, the sacrificial system, it was the, the only solution to the problem of the sword had to be something grander. But yet all the prophets talked about it. All throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the, 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 the prophets kept promising that someday the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters fill the sea and the whole world would become the holy of holies. The whole earth would be filled with the presence and the glory of God and people of all nations, all races, all backgrounds, all social classes would be able to be back in God's presence. Those are beautiful prophecies, but still the question remains, how do we get past the sword? Well, because there's no way back into the presence of God without going under the sword, the answer is given to us in Isaiah chapter 53, where it says about the Messiah in verse number eight, he will be cut off from the land of the living. Or in Revelation, where John looks at the throne, this ultimate place of power in the universe, and why he sees a slaughtered lamb. Because the death of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, is the greatest triumph in the history of the cosmos because there's no way back into the presence of God without, undergoing, without going under the sword. When Jesus went under the sword, it broke his body temporarily, but it also broke the sword. This is what J.I. Packer, one of my favorite authors, he famously called the death of death and the death of Christ. Jesus' death did everything. It killed death, it killed evil. Forever, Jesus took the sword for you and for me. That's why at the moment of Jesus' death, like we read around Easter, that the veil was ripped completely in two from the top to the bottom, Mark 15, 38. It wasn't just ruined, it was made obsolete so that now we all have access to the presence of God. The flaming sword claimed its victim. The veil was parted, the way back into the garden was permanently reopened, and the, now the way back into the presence of God because of Jesus had gone under the sword. The people in Matthew, Mark, and Luke may have been startled at the Jesus's display, at Jesus's anger in turning over and clearing out the temple, but they were even more shocked by the fact that he was overturning their system of sacrifice, their system of division, uh, by now making the way back into the presence of God available for everybody. Jew, Gentile. Israelite, Greek. First century, 2023, for everyone. And church, this is why we have to realize 
the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is where we'd better lean in and realize and accept the magnitude of what Christ accomplished. He removed the sword. He removed death. He removed punishment. He removed separation. He removed all the guilt that should have been ours because of our sin. He removed any system. He removed any excuse. He removed any barrier back into the presence of God. He paid all the cost. He paid all the sacrificial necessities. He paid with all the pain, all the suffering, all the torment. His life for ours. He was a final sacrifice for you. Every debt paid, every pain incurred for you. And all we have to do is believe. Not just fluffy believe, but this surrendering to the one who died for you. And there are implications of this section of scripture, of this encounter on many levels. First of all, for the church as a whole. The temple action presents Jesus' condemnation to the corrupt temple, especially to the exclusion of the Gentiles. And faithful listeners, of which we are a part, faithful followers who desire to be be the obedient church, see the church as the, the, the... the, the, in the family of the temple, we have now taken its place and we must welcome every tongue, every race, every culture, every social class. And we will do whatever we need to to make sure that the message of the gospel is getting to those who desperately need it. We will assess our prejudices and our biases, our customs and traditions, and see how we need to do things differently so that we do not hinder the mission of Christ's church. And we will take every opportunity, every step necessary to right the ship, to expedite the mission. For the believer, for if you're sitting in here and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if, if he calls you a son or a daughter, this should be a stark reminder that we had better not be a barrier to the mission of Jesus Christ. Of that we had better not be a hindrance for people seeing Jesus, but we should be a conduit, a facilitator, a partner in the Great Commission, remembering that the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in us and has made us alive. For the one who yet has not yet placed their faith in Jesus, who has not called on him as Savior, who has not surrendered to him as King, You need to know that he died to remove all barriers to eternity and perfection. You need to know that he died so that you could quit worrying about whether you could ever be good enough or measure up to God's standards because you can't be and you do not need to be because you're not the standard Jesus is. You need to know that he sacrificed himself to grant you one-on-one, person-to-person access to the creator and the redeemer of the world. You are his, and since the beginning of time, he has desperately sought you out. You need to know that God so loved the world that he sent his son, not to condemn it, but to redeem it. Jesus loved you so much that he left perfection to come and live, die, and be resurrected for you. And the Holy Spirit loves you so much that he's never going to leave you, that he is a part of who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. 
this salvation, this access is now available to you because someone has undergone the sword on your behalf, paid the penalty, has said the most meaningful sorry possible. Not that he needed to say it, but he said it, he did it for us. Wherever you are this morning, I pray that you see this encounter in the temple for much more than we have read it to be in the past. That this is God, this is Jesus going under the sword for you, granting access to you to be back in the good graces, in the presence of your God. Not just in this life, but for all eternity. There is no other way back into the presence of God other than through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Because no one else was able to go under the sword and defeat it. But Jesus did for you.